data is powerful and important and it's it's useful in healthcare and dangerous in in surveillance because of how it's aggregated it's how all of our data is is useful together everybody and welcome to the seventh episode of stuff we don't learn in school my name is jenny i'm victoria and today we are joined with special guest michael madison would you like to introduce yourself hello i'm mike madison i'm a law professor i teach at pitt i have been a professor at pitt for 22 years oh man uh, and I teach uh, intellectual property subjects, which is copyrights and trademarks and a little bit of patents, although I'm not a patent lawyer. I teach things having to do with technology and the internet, and I teach areas related to leadership and collaboration and a lot of things that lawyers and other professionals need to be better at than they have been <laughs> historically. Um, I'm not a Pittsburgh native. I have been here for exactly 22 years. I was recruited to the job at Pitt. Before coming to Pittsburgh, I was in California. I am a native of Menlo Park, which is a town that back in the old days, no one had ever heard of. And now pretty much everybody has heard of it because Menlo Park is the hometown for Facebook in mm -hmm. Silicon Valley. And I, uh, I went to law school in Palo Alto, and I was a lawyer for about 10 years in San Francisco and in Palo Alto. So I actually practiced law, which is a little yeah. unusual because most people who are full-time law professors uh, didn't practice law at all beforehand or practice law for only a short time. So really? I have a lot of experience as a practicing lawyer. So kind of delving into your experiences with the law and specifically about our topic today, which originally was called data rights. But as we later found out, it's not exactly data rights, more of data governance and data privacy and everything like that. The laws that govern how data is distributed among these different corporations and people and the government itself. So what about technological law intrigued you specifically? Was there a particular moment that was like, aha, technology and law together sounds like something that I want to do? Or was it more a slow pathway? Um, for me, it was more the second. And honestly, Again, maybe, maybe this is changing for people who are becoming lawyers these days, but a very large proportion of people I know who do law in intersection with technology are people who migrated into technology law from other areas. Mm -hmm. And it technology questions just sort of snuck up on you, and then all of a sudden you realize that it was this big, cool, interesting, sexy thing. <laughs> um, so the reason that makes sense is that I went to law school I started law school uh, almost a little bit about 35 years ago, mid 1980s is mm -hmm. when I started law school and then got out of law school in the later 80s and then was a lawyer until the late 1990s. And I did not take any law school courses that had anything to do with technology. I did not take any law school courses that had anything to do with intellectual property. I went to law school at Stanford. There were no courses mm -hmm. at my law school on technology. There was one course on intellectual property. 
it wasn't a thing. Silicon Valley wasn't the Silicon Valley of today. Software wasn't a giant thing. Um, it just didn't seem to be important. I went to work in a law firm in San Francisco and I did cases in banking and real estate and all kinds of things that were interesting as sort of conventional business law kinds of matters. But if technology came in, it was sort of an add-on. My very first case as a lawyer was a case that involved an IBM 3060 mainframe computer. <laughs> and the legal question had nothing to do with the computer itself. The legal question had to do with the, the other side had refused to pay for using it. It uh. was a basic, they breached the contract by failing to pay the money that they had promised kind of a thing. The content of the tech wasn't the point. It wasn't until later I changed law firms in the early 1990s and went to work for a law firm in Palo Alto. And then I started to be surrounded by clients that were doing software, were doing hardware design, chip design and distribution, biotechnology, as well as computer technology, investors, venture capitalists, real estate developers, oh everybody Lord. had something to do with technology. Yeah. Um, the, the legal questions continued to be pretty ordinary. They stole the thing, <laughs> they, failed to, they, they failed to pay for the thing. They shouldn't have fired me when I was building the thing. Uh, you know, it's mm. nothing as exotic as what you have today with data privacy and things. But yeah. you're kind of immersed in the sense that everything has some technological character to it. The next thing that happened is the internet, right? Yeah. The internet wasn't a thing. And then all of a sudden in the spring of 1996, the summer of 1996, all of a sudden the internet was a thing. The science of the internet, the technology of the internet existed so I had been using email before that, but it was Yahoo and then Netscape, the two first big internet-y companies, if you will, mm -hmm. that really burst out of the gate in 1996 and said, aha, there's actually business here. Initially, there was intellectual property law questions and commercial law questions and secrecy questions. It only got to be privacy much later as the internet got bigger. But it was the internet arriving that really caused that first generation of lawyers and other people, not just lawyers, to sit up and say, aha, there's something really significant going on that we should be paying attention to. And at that point, I was literally in the middle, 1996, I was in the middle of transitioning mm -hmm. from being a practicing lawyer to becoming a law professor. And when you're looking for a job as a law professor, it's like looking for a job in any other marketplace. You're like, how am I going to stand out? How am I going to be different? How am I going to say something <laughs> valuable that people will want to hire me for? Yeah. I was a lawyer from Silicon Valley. So the, the obvious and easy thing <laughs> to do was to say, I know something about intellectual property in this new sexy technology area. Yeah. yeah. And I was not the only person saying that, but I was one of a relatively small number of people saying that. That helped me navigate to my job here at the University of Pittsburgh. And I landed, fortunately, in an environment that's full of really, really interesting technology stuff. Yeah. So as somebody who witnessed this burst of technology in the midst of your professional career and seeing the development of intellectual property and almost defining it in law itself as a lawyer, as somebody who is an integral part within this conversation, was it like swimming in an ocean of just uncertainty at that point? Or did people have finite ideas about intellectual property going into that conversation? I think the answer to that question is both. So the intellectual property questions, especially copyright questions, but also questions about antitrust law, questions about 
consumer protection law, questions about contract law, all of those are pre-existing bodies of law and lawyers and experts in those areas, even back then, had very strong opinions. Mm -hmm. As they always do. Like they always do about how those laws should apply to new technologies, new marketplaces, new products and services, new ways of creating things, sharing things, accessing things. That doesn't mean that they were always right. It doesn't mean that everybody always agreed. It simply means that there was a cohort of people who came in and said, we know exactly what should go on. There were lots of other people coming in saying, this is a brand new space. The internet is a radically (laughs) different thing. The world is enormously changed. Mm. And we have to rethink some basic assumptions. We have to rethink basic assumptions about who owns what. We have to rethink basic assumptions about what is fair competition in the marketplace. We have to rethink basic assumptions about privacy. We have to rethink basic assumptions about consumer protection, bias, discrimination, all kinds of things. So it covered a lot of areas well beyond what I was focused on. So there was both a lot of insistence on the right answer and also a lot of uncertainty and ambiguity along the way. Yeah. So you said previous to the invention of the internet, there were a lot of things that were typical in being a lawyer. So what were some of these new problems that arose with the internet and cases that you saw that you hadn't seen before as a lawyer in Silicon Valley? Well, the things that I was involved in in particular had to do with copyright law. So I'll give you a couple of quick examples from copyright law. And for anybody who's not already familiar with copyright law, which is probably many people. Uh, (laughs) Copyright is the body of rules, federal law, that deals with who owns and who gets to use creative content. So the classic example are novels, poems and plays, Mm -hmm. songs and other forms of music, film, artwork, photography, painting, sculpture, dance, pretty much anything that we think of as being somewhat traditionally or classically creative. Mm -hmm. When you're an author and you create something, then copyright says you own what you've created and you can control what happens to that. You get control over whether you sell it, you get control over setting the price, you get control over authorizing other people to use it by licensing it and so forth. The big no-no, but you turn that around, it's like, so if you are a copyright owner, the big no-no, the thing that you worry about more than anything else is somebody else making a copy of your work, pirating your work without Mm -hmm. your permission, Mm -hmm. right? Okay, so that's the basic equation of copyright. There's lots of limitations, there's lots of exclusions, there's lots of nuances, but the basic logic is don't copy my stuff without my permission. Fair enough. Okay, so in the old pre-internet, really pre-computer software days, that's a pretty easy thing most of the time to figure out. Did somebody make a copy? Well, Making a copy in the old days was, on the whole, difficult and expensive Mm -hmm. because somebody might have a printing press in a warehouse somewhere and they manufacture pirate copies of a book or they they press pirate copies of of an LP record or something. But, you know, figuring out whether somebody has cheated by pirating something, there's a big investment that somebody needs to make to be a pirate. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. But nowadays... Now, like take computer software and then put computer software on the internet and copying happens like that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not just that copying happens like, you know, right click on an image or, you know, put put the plugin or or the extension to your browser and download the YouTube video, right? So that's obvious and instantaneous. 
there is so much copying going on in the internet era. We don't even know all the copying that's going yeah. on. Why not? Because the way the internet works, the way content goes from server banks all the way to your computer at home, there's copies and copies and copies and copies at all stages of that network in terms of how the internet ordinarily works. Copying isn't piracy. Copying is fundamental and yeah. necessary to the internet. So the question got asked back in the late 1990s, if copying is so necessary, how can copying be illegal? Where do you yeah. draw that line? Yeah, that's a hard question. Yeah. So uh, for better or for worse, there was a series of court cases in the late 1990s, mostly in California, that, that teed up that question. Like, so if a computer makes a copy of a program as part of the ordinary operation of the program, does the person making the copy, meaning say you with your PC or you with your Mac or you with your Apple, yeah. do you need permission to use your computer? Do you need permission and copyright to make the kind of copies that your computer ordinarily is making because that's how the computer works? And again, without going into a great deal of nuance and detail, the short answer is yes, you do. But your, the copying that your computer does, the copying that servers make inside the internet, all of those are copies that copyright says need to be approved by some copyright owner. So that's been an incredibly influential point of law because it means that licensing and permissions, terms of use, terms of service, all those click-through things that we all go through, <laughs> a lot of that, which is enormously annoying and nobody actually reads, all of that is descended from these late 1990s rulings that you know, inside that thing you don't read is something that says somebody grants you permission to use the software that you just bought. Yeah. That's the copyright logic at work. And there's, I could spin out related examples mm -hmm. in, for bigger scale industrial yeah. big company settings, but that was like an easy point to, to illustrate how something that had been important conceptually, copying is illegal, turned out to have a practical scale that worked in a very different way once the internet became a big deal. So we had to negotiate in some, some litigation over what the rule was going to be going forward. Yeah, and just today, actually, <clears throat> I was watching the White House Correspondence Center with Conan O'Brien, and I was looking him <laughs> up, and something that you mentioned that reminds me, relating to copyright, the stealing of work, and especially with the advent of the internet, a lot of the times, how can you tell if someone copied you or if you just had the same exact idea and then both of you just ended up posting it? But basically, Conan O'Brien faced a lawsuit over joke stealing and he wrote in an open letter kind of talking about that and explaining how with the internet and with the influx of information and just how many voices are in one cohesive space, like people can just automatically accuse you of copying even if you don't which is like the flip side of what you were saying in terms of like you know how do you yeah how do you address things that aren't true but might seem like it because both of you posted the same joke or had similar jokes so I think that's something that's pretty interesting because he dismissed it in an open letter but not everybody has the platform to, or the means you do face a lawsuit in that regard. Yeah. I imagine it's a tough thing. I mean, especially if you know you did, if you didn't copy and you're being, you're being accused for it. And, and the Conan O'Brien example is a good one because again, it illustrates something that the internet created in a sense. In yeah. the old days, 
So before the internet, you had Jay Leno and Johnny Carson and late night talk show hosts. Right. And where, where did the jokes come from? If you were a professional comedian or if you're a professional talk show host, odds are very high that the jokes came from a group of professional writers right. who were paid by the show or paid by the comic. And there was kind of a closed club right. or a network of people who were sort of professional artists in that genre and were just using comedy as the as the case study. Mm-hmm. Uh, so breaking into that genre, breaking into that club was hard. Mm-hmm. It was you know, luck and bias and access and the right schools and so forth. But there was a pathway. Yes. Um, but if you weren't in the club, you were out of the club. And it was a pretty clear line. Uh, you know, who's an artist? Who's not an artist? Yeah. Who's a professional photographer? Who's a who's a painter? Who's a musician? Like the people who are the pros and the people who are the amateurs. And then there's the rest of us who just pay for the privilege of listening. <laughs> exactly. With, with the Internet, all of those lines get very blurry. So Conan O'Brien still has a writer's room. He still has a group of writers, Mm -hmm. but it's not as closed a network as it used to be because they're surfing the internet. They're on Twitter. They're on other social media. You or I can communicate with them, at least indirectly, because we can generate our own ideas. And in the old days, you take our own ideas and you might, if you were an aspiring writer for Johnny Carson back in the old days. Yeah. You might write out a joke and you put it in an envelope and you mail it to Hollywood and hope for the best. <laughs> you just tag Conan on Twitter and, and, yeah. the best. and, and it, it creates, as you say, it creates a lot of interesting opportunities for people because in many respects, the internet has, has created opportunities for people to have careers in the arts, to have careers as creators, to have careers as inventors that were be much more difficult in the old days. But it also blurs some of the old fields and disciplines and lines so that it makes it harder sometimes to track, you know, is this good? Is it not good? Where did this come from? Is this copied or is it original? Yeah. Those things are much more contentious sometimes because information is flowing all over the place. Exactly. And I think you touched on this next point that we wanted to talk about, which was both the problems and the opportunities that data and the Internet and this new form of technology can have on society because on one hand it's so easy to access i mean this is the number one benefit of the internet if you ask anybody is the globalization of ideas right the sharing of ideas and the easy access to information all over the web i mean elon musk says like (laughs) college isn't necessary in that it's just an experience because information is just so easily available but on the other hand obviously the internet creates such blurred lines that you no longer know where that line is really drawn and what becomes legal and what isn't legal. So what do you think federal law should look like with regards to data protection in balancing those opportunities and those issues with data whenever it comes to the private sector and for the government itself in using that data? So many issues there. Uh, so uh, data. First, we should sort of break down what we mean by data. Yes. Yeah. Could you define bit, right? data so, for yourself? So there's, I can give you a definition. The problem with the definition, as you will hear, is that it is so broad yeah. that it's not really useful. <laughs> right. So, uh, if, if you talk to people who are in the field of information science, mm-hmm. not computer science, but information science, so 
the, the modern cousins and descendants of librarians and archivists. And we still have lots of librarians and archivists, and they're fabulous people. Mm -hmm. We love our librarians and archivists. Um, uh, but information science is now the, the macro umbrella within which librarianship and archival science is situated. I, information scientists will tell you that data means evidence. Mm -hmm. I mean, data is anything that is evidence of something else. So uh, to take a very easy to understand example, particularly for Western Pennsylvania, when you go to the Giant Eagle and you use your Giant Eagle card and the Giant Eagle records the fact that today you bought hot dogs and toilet paper and mm -hmm. shampoo and bananas, mm -hmm. uh, that record of what you bought is data because it's evidence of what you bought on that day, you know, what time, who used the card, how much money you spent, how many bananas, and, and how many hot dogs and so forth. Uh, those kinds of records, that kind of evidence comes up in consumer transactions at retail, all kinds of things, online and as in the Giant Eagle example, um, in the physical world as well as in e-commerce. Uh, think about healthcare, visits to the doctor, visits to the hospital. Who did you see? What did you see them for? What kind of treatment did you receive? Uh, what was the insurance transaction associated with that? Who paid for different aspects of what you saw? Um, so the, the giant bodies of data that get people worried these days are in healthcare and in consumer behavior. Mm -hmm. But we also think about scientific data. Yep. Uh, so I've done a little bit of work, uh, interestingly enough, with astrophysics. Uh, so the people wow. who do astrophysics <laughs> and astronomy, they work with enormous amounts of data because, of course, they're taking pictures of the sky and the stars. Yeah. And that's fabulous, fascinating stuff. But that's data because they're yep. taking snapshots of, of things that they're then studying. Also, geology and um, the weather. The weather is a source of enormous data questions, not because it creates trouble, but because it's so powerful and valuable, we have to figure out how to manage it. So when you're talking about legal rules relative to data, we have to think both about opportunity and possibility, and we also and making sure we can make good use of data. We also have to think about risks and harm and drawbacks and what kind of the problems that emerge when uh, the wrong kind of data is gathered, the data is gathered by the wrong people, uh, too much data is gathered by the wrong people. Yep. Uh, the data that data that is appropriately gathered is put to the you know bad uses. There's yep. all kinds of combinations of things uh, that emerge. So so there's no one single strategy for lining up the rules with the data. There's just a variety of considerations. The other thing that we have to pay attention to, even as we just had this conversation about how the internet opens society to participation and inclusion and flows and globally. But something we know is that some of the problematic patterns that you see in the old days, the pre-internet days, are coming back, meaning concentrations of wealth, concentrations mm -hmm. of power. Yeah. So we, you know, we used to worry about uh, IBM, and then we worried about Microsoft, and now we <laughs> worry about Facebook. In fact, we're recording this conversation on a day that there was a hearing in Congress about uh, Facebook and Twitter, uh, and sort of the, the power that these big companies exercise, not just by virtue of being in social media, but by virtue of being in social media, they're generating and collecting massive amounts of data yeah. about people who are on Facebook and who are on Twitter and who are mostly really unaware of the ways in which their data is being collected, their data is being aggregated, their data is being used. Yeah. 
for advertising purposes and other purposes. So we have to combine this sense of, yes, data can be powerful and good, data can be powerful and bad. We also have to take account of the fact that it's not everybody who has equal opportunity in the data space. Mm -hmm. Some companies have more opportunity than others. And just like in the old days, we worry especially about big companies. We worry about companies that are especially wealthy and we worry about companies that are non-transparent. So you said, well, like what, maybe we should be thinking about what the government should be doing relative to data. Actually, most of my colleagues and I spend more of our time worrying about what private companies do with data mm -hmm. rather than with what the government is doing with data. Do you think there should be federal regulations? Because I know last year when I learned about this, I was actually super surprised, like the European Union GDPR, General Data Protection Regulation Act, which just enacts a series of policies across the European Union that just protects consumer data. In California, uh, the other day I read about it and was also surprised they have the California Consumer Privacy Act. And on the internet, I saw then-presidential candidate Andrew Yang launch a data dividend project, which basically was this movement to push for consumers to own their data and get compensated for it. And I want to get your thoughts on that. And what do you think the line should be drawn from the role of law? So let's take these kind of in sequence. First, the question of federal law, then what we think of what the Europeans have done and what the Californians have done. And then, so this question of data ownership and Andrew Yang and, and that. So the, the challenge with federal law is that there are so many different sectors of data collection and use. It's hard to imagine a single national law that would be both sort of effective and comprehensive. Mm -hmm. right? So the most we've got right now uh, under federal law is we have the FTC Act, the Federal Trade Commission Act. And so mm -hmm. the Federal Trade Commission Act is a general purpose unfair competition and consumer protection law that allows the Federal Trade Commission to sue in its own name to suspend and stop deceptive practices of very broad sorts. So this is a general power in the federal government in an administrative agency to sort of push off to things. Now, the good news is that, yes, there is some general federal power that would extend to data abuses of various sorts. The bad news is that the Federal Trade Commission only has so much resources and so much time, mm -hmm. and so it can only deal with so many problems. So what the FTC does, in the best case, is send some signals about what it generally thinks are good ideas and bad, bad ideas, and can send out test cases to sort of set rules of the road. But as a practical matter, most of the consumer protection litigation in this country happens at the state level, either yeah. because of state attorney generals who are sometimes quite ambitious and creative under state consumer protection law or through private plaintiffs class action litigation, which can sometimes deal with things like data breaches and mm -hmm. unfair data collection practices. So it's so as a practical matter, the country is so big and so diverse, you have to have a multi-tiered system. Do I think that we need more federal law than we already have with the FTC Act? I'm not sure because I actually know some of the people in the state attorney general's offices, and I know some people who practice law mm -hmm. representing private consumer class actions, and these people tend to be dynamite. Now, they never have quite the same level of resources that would be ideal, but they've got kind of an entrepreneurial instinct and motivation that I find admirable. Yeah. Uh, and so I'm hoping that that continues to, to grow. 
Um, the European example, the GDPR, General Data Protection Regulation, is interesting, but it comes out of a very European mindset and yeah. philosophy about individual rights. There's a long tradition going back centuries. The Europeans just think about human rights differently yeah. than the American, not right or wrong. It's just a different cultural trajectory and background. The biggest impact that the GDPR has had on us in the U.S., when you surf around the internet now, you're constantly clicking on these, uh, we use cookies. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That? Cookies. But that's the GDPR in action. It has ruined the browsing experience for a lot of Americans who were accustomed to click, click, click. And now yeah. we have to get rid of these cookie notices. That's the GDPR. The GDPR is all about telling you mm -hmm. that your data is being collected. And then we don't. And then what? You're no better off in terms of preventing data from being collected unless you decide not to go to the website. Oh. And, and that kind of defeats the point mm -hmm. of the web. So I get the impulse, but I don't think the GDPR style regulation would work here because it's simply not consistent with our history and traditions. Yes. Um, California, uh, as Cal I'm a native Californian, so you know, yeah. California, I know, has often been in the forefront of a lot of interesting things, right. legally speaking. And uh, the, the California Consumer Protection, no, excuse me, California Consumer Privacy Act, mm -hmm. CCPA, uh, is sort of sort of a, a state law version of the GDPR. It's yeah. got a lot of similarities to the GDPR as a matter of state law. The problem that both the GDPR and the CCPA have, in my view, and again, this is just my own take on things, and it's going to spill over into my thoughts on ownership of data and Andrew Yang, yeah. is that it, it addresses the question of data rights or data governance or whatever you want to call it as a question of individuals, right? It treats the problem of data collection and data misuse as a problem of me or you. As if it's my data and I should have the right to say yay or nay relative to my data. Yeah. And I understand that because there's a that's the long enlightenment philosophy tradition of individual autonomy and individual right. self-determination mm -hmm. and individual rights. And we're insanely proud of that yep. in this country, especially. <laughs> and it's really important. But it completely misses what's going on with data. No one cares about one person's data. Yeah. Oh, it's a general. Data is powerful and important, and it's it's useful in healthcare and dangerous in, in surveillance because of how it's aggregated. It's how all of our data is is useful together. Right. Mm -hmm. And so if you and so data ownership, the, the Andrew Yang's concept and other people have advanced this, I personally think is a terrible idea. The the real the real goal here in terms of the legal system, in terms of regulation, in terms of what private industry should be doing, is there needs to be a way of identifying and advancing rules of appropriate collection of data at scale, rules of appropriate storage and maintenance of data at scale, rules of appropriate use of data at scale. Right. So in healthcare, right, people we've learned to be focused on HIPAA, right? The privacy and portability statute, federal law. So every time you go to the doctor, there's some HIPAA disclosure. Yeah. You have to waive your yeah. HIPAA rights so that your insurance company will pay the doctor or the hospital. Yeah. Okay, I get it. The problem is that in protecting individual patients, mm -hmm. you're interfering with the power of researchers to take information about right. your medical visit, aggregate it with what other people have experienced, and get better treatments and better therapies and better strategies 
strategies for getting people well. Because the only way to do that using modern science is to aggregate yeah. care visits and figure out what's working for populations of people, not just what's working for one person. So you need to figure out a way to get that clinical care data out of the hospital and the doctor's office and put it in the PhD scientist's lab. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Right? And so that's a question of appropriate use of data in the aggregate, not data about each individual patient. Take a different example that's not quite so happy as making healthcare better. <laughs> think, about, think about surveillance data. Yeah. Right? So I'm working on some research right now uh, about what are called smart cities. If you've heard of smart cities. Mm -hmm. So the idea behind smart cities is that any given city can put sensors and sort of embedded switches and algorithms and you put them in automobiles and you put them on light poles and you put them in the roadways and you put them in the parking spaces and as a way of keeping track of where everybody's moving all the time. So we call it a smart city because instead of the city as a whole public administration, like the public works, for example, or the police department or the school system, instead right. of everybody sort of assuming that people drive around and do whatever they do, you know, now there are systems in place where you can be watched. Oh, it's, all, it's all attached to the internet and there are banks of servers mm -hmm. keeping track of all this data and so forth. Now, there's a little bit of futurism in this. It's yeah. not all actually happening at at such a creepy scale yet, <laughs> although, you know, you go to the Pittsburgh airport for people who are going to the Pittsburgh airport these days, and you look around the Pittsburgh airport and you'll see, if you look, a lot of cameras yeah. at the Pittsburgh airport. Go to downtown Pittsburgh, you'll see a lot of cameras aimed at sidewalks, Market Square, and various things. Yeah. And do you know who's watching? You know if anybody's watching? You know what's <sighs> happening with all that data? Because that's what that is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Not, you know, is that the police department watching? Is it public works watching? Is it, it might be the, it, it might be public works trying to figure out, is there enough snow on the street to justify <laughs> sending the plows out? That's smart cities. Yeah. Um, yeah. But there's also creepier things, right? Which is, right. you know, are people moving from neighborhood to neighborhood at the wrong time of day or night? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so forth. So that's an area where people worry about both private industry, because most of these technologies are developed and supplied by private contractors, and they worry about the combination of private industry and some parts of, we'll call it local government, it might be yeah. city of Pittsburgh, it might be Allegheny County, it might be police department, it might be your school district. You know, I teach at Pitt. Pitt, like many universities, uses courseware for students to interact with for you know, receiving assignments, turning in assignments, collecting grades, monitoring attendance. Um, I don't know what happens in high schools these days, but I assume that with the way schooling is working these days, there is some software platform that students yeah. and teachers and parents in high schools and public schools, you interact with. Mm -hmm. So that software is probably supplied by a private software. I mm -hmm. don't know about your district, but I know at my university, it's privately developed software that buys a license to use the software. And pretty much every faculty member and every student in every department uses this software, it's yeah. private software. Okay, it's convenient, and that's why it's used. However, what does the software do? Well, it's like Facebook. It's monitoring yeah. behind the scenes. Every time a student logs in, every time a student checks an assignment, every time a student uh, uploads something, reads a, an essay that's been assigned as part of the syllabus, there's a little tick box that's being checked somewhere in the code that says, for those five, sentence, for those five seconds, uh, Joe Smith uh, was online yeah. and paid attention 
that, and if you aggregate that across the 30,000 students that are enrolled at Pitt or the 2,500 students that are enrolled or whatever it is at North Allegheny, uh, the, the private company and the district or the university can get some interesting information about yeah. patterns of student behavior. And if you have in interesting information about patterns of student behavior, that might be valuable. Yeah. They might, they might sell you ads. They might call up your parents and say, you know, so-and-so hasn't been checking in yeah. regularly as expected. Uh, and there's all kinds of things that some of you might think of as more okay and some of you might think of as not so okay. But right. I guarantee you that most students don't know that this is going on. They just think that's the software where we check the readings and upload our assignments. You don't know that you're being watched. Yeah. And you don't know who's doing the watching and you don't know what's happening with the information <laughs> that they're collecting when you're they're watching it. Um, so there's an area where you don't want to have a single legal rule that says this is good and this is not good. You want to have a set of guidelines that right. might be law or it might be something else uh, that says this is the appropriate area where collecting information of a certain sort is productive and not harmful. And this is an area where storing the information is okay and not harmful. And these are situations where sharing that information, say for educational purposes, is good but sharing it for collecting money purposes, advertising purposes uh, is bad. Yeah. We don't want to allow the information to be shared that way. I was going to say, like, as a general rule of thumb, and I know that there are very few general rules of thumbs in law. <laughs> There's always an exception. But whenever it comes to those sets of laws, would you say that it would be better to implement more laws, I don't know if this is already the case, but implement more laws limiting the use of data in private institutions rather than kind of public institutions and the government. And I know that you addressed that there's there's such a large intersectionality between the two whenever it comes to, you know, the use of that data. So what is your take on that? I, I guess concern number one is that in some respects, there's a very clear, bright line that separates public organizations and the government from private organizations, which are not the government. Yeah. Uh, and so the legal system, it, to a very meaningful degree, is premised on that big divide. Mm -hmm. In practice, and I've kind of alluded to this, in practice, the overlaps and intersections between what's private and what's public, it's just it's a very, very messy, complicated yes. space. So having a set of rules that says, it's okay for private companies to do this, but not okay for public governments to do that, and that's or the reverse. Uh, is a very it's a difficult line to manage in practice, mm -hmm. uh, and it can be manipulated because you can always rearrange who does what, and all of a sudden, if you can rearrange who does what, then different rules might apply, and that will defeat the purpose <laughs> yeah. of having the rule. Yeah. Uh, so we have to be we have to be alert for uh, sort of function as opposed to just only the label. Yeah. Uh, not that the function should be as determinative as the label, but that both seem to matter. Right. Uh, second thing to think about, second concern is that rules, whether they're bright line rules or fuzzy standards, you know, the legal system is full of both, um, those are often incomplete. Right? And so in Congress and members of state legislatures and even local Allegheny County Council and City of Pittsburgh Council, everybody knows you can't put a rule in place for every single problem. Uh, 
too many problems, too many different varieties. Right. Life is too complicated. There's too many people. You can't have a rule <laughs> for everything. And at some point, you need to empower people and rely on people figuring out how to get along for themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and this is this is a really interesting challenge because the lawyers of the world are not accustomed to thinking in these terms. But there's a very, very long tradition in this country of doing exactly that. Uh, so this is the way localities and neighborhoods and small groups of people uh, and small towns and even larger places around the country uh, have organized themselves for centuries since the beginning of the country, right? So group of people go out and they found a town, group of people go out and they found a neighborhood, uh, group of people get together and decide that we want to be a not-for-profit organization or a volunteer-based group. Uh, and yeah, we'll have some rough rules for how we're going to get along because neighbors are going to disagree and not everybody's going to get with the program all the time. Uh, but we work it out and we don't work it out perfectly. No one ever works it out perfectly because we're all different people and we have different goals, but we get along. Mm-hmm. I live in a neighbor. I live in the South Hills, right? I live in the South Hills and I live in a neighbor and I come from California. Right? So I've got this interesting contrasting perspective, not being a Pittsburgh native. Yes. I come from a place where it's very transient. The, the, the Bay Area of California, Los Angeles and Southern California, it's, it's an incredibly transient place. No one's from there. I'm a rare person to actually have been born in California. <laughs> California is yeah. noteworthy because people come and go all the time. It's, yeah, like, right. it's this high turnover. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's what makes California interesting in many respects. It's what gives it a lot of economic energy. The innovation and creativity is partly due to the fact that there's people coming and going all the time. Yeah. Pittsburgh is the complete opposite <laughs> of this, historically speaking. Right? Yes. Nobody comes to Pittsburgh relative to the people who come to California. Not historically. Yeah. Yes. Pittsburgh is an incredibly stable, durable place. Pittsburgh has neighborhoods. Pittsburgh has towns. And these neighborhoods and towns have identities that yeah. persist over extended periods of time. And no matter where you are on the cultural spectrum or the political spectrum, this is the truth of Pittsburgh. Right? It's why Steelers fans are so so universal. <laughs> whether they like football or not, this is you have to sign up. Have, it's a law. You have to have a terrible pal. Essentially, yes, you are right. right. So, so people manage to get along. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, sometimes it's just day to day stuff. Getting along with your neighbors, getting along with your neighborhood. Uh, you know how to manage people have different kinds of dogs. Uh, kids of different ages. You know, you go to the high school football games on Friday nights. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's where, you know, you, you work out your drama is on the football field. But, you know, we managed to get along. And so it that seems like a very kind of small scale, kind of simplistic example. But th- this problem of data is only going to get bigger and more complicated. Yeah. Uh, data is everywhere, you know, algorithms and artificial intelligence and smart devices, not just smart cities. They're only going to get bigger and more powerful and cheaper. We have you know, people who have these the, the, the doorbells, the Nest doorbells. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? It's a smart technology. All of a sudden, your doorbell's on the internet. What's up with that? <laughs> That's data. It is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you can't rely on the government to bail you out every time that there's a problem or a conflict. Somehow, we have to find ways to get small groups of people, larger groups of people, disagreeing groups of people to be in situations where they can get together and figure out some of the guidelines for themselves. Yeah. Right. Because every instance is just so unique. 
no matter what. Yeah, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll even do you one better. I'll circle back to their example at the beginning about Conan O'Brien. Mm -hmm. okay? So this will surprise you, but it's good. Okay. So joke stealing, which was the theme of that claim that people yeah. brought against Conan O'Brien. So I actually, I have friends, this is what law professors sometimes get to do. I have friends who have studied joke stealing. Okay. <laughs> That's awesome. Wait, specifically. So, so, yeah, now get, guess what you get to do when you're studying joke stealing? You get to go <laughs> talk to stand up comics. You get no! To stand up comics. Oh my uh, gosh. And so it turns out, and here's, the, here's why it's relevant to my data example it turns out that stand up comics hate joke stealing. Yeah. Real professional stand up comics can't stand it. If you are known as a joke thief, you're going to be. <laughs> You know, non grata in the comedic world. Yes. But here's the thing, and this is what my colleagues who study this have discovered. Stand-up comedians don't sue other stand-up comedians. Right? So the idea of joke stealing is that if you're in the club, you know the rules. And if you violate the rules of the club, meaning professional stand-up comics, then the comics have a way of dealing with you. Right. You'll be shunned. Your reputation will go right. way oh. down because you'll be a, a reputation as a joke stealer. Right. But you don't need to sue anybody to punish somebody because the, the reputational punishment is damage enough because oh they'll have a hard gosh. time getting work. That's so interesting. Yeah. So that that like so the, the group of comedians, this is this is a tradition that goes way, way back. My colleagues studied this. They went, they did the history all the way back to the 1950s and before. It's a long-standing thing. It's not brand new. Um, that the comedy world is an example of a world that's managed to work out right ways to use creativity, wrong ways to use creativity, right. to manage the, and, and to maintain comedy as a thing, as it's still a big thing, without relying on formal legal rules, which yeah. would be copyright law. So that's just one little instance, right? It's just one little case study of a group of people yeah. who have managed to figure out how to manage you know, right uses of information, wrong uses of information, who controls it, who can share it, who can access it without building in a big elaborate, you know, hire the lawyer, go to court. Exactly. Um, and I could, there are other examples I could talk about, but that's a fun one. And it relates to what you were talking about earlier with Conan. So I thought it's nice uh, yeah. you know, closing loop. Um, I think that the data world, whether we call it data ownership, data ethics, data privacy, data rights, it needs more of that spirit that, that we as a society, large scale, small scale, need to um, rely on some of our longstanding traditions and capabilities uh, to, to figure out how to govern ourselves. This is not a, it's not a perfect solution. Yeah, it's never going to be a perfect solution, but it has to be part of how we think about how to deal with this because these are these are relative to what's going to happen. These are small problems now, unbelievably, <laughs> much much bigger and more challenging. Yeah, and the point about having each person in whatever in group they associate with. So if it's comedy, or if it's maybe some sort of religious affiliation or whether it's education, like whatever you associate with as your in-group or in-groups, plural, <laughs> and having people take autonomy and kind of choose 
what they define as privacy for themselves, what they think is the line between um, private organizations and public organizations using their data, engaging in data brokering, and kind of then pushing for change, I think. I mean, it's something I didn't really think about. I always thought about it from a legal point of view, and not even from a state point of view, just like a general broad overarching series, <laughs> like the 10 rules. Okay, here's the thing, you know, data brokering, no, or like, like very simplistic, very almost reductive guidelines. But the idea, again, of having different individuals kind of step up, like, for example, what I found out the other day, because, you know, because of online school and stuff was I realized based on the software we use, the teachers can see how long we spent on a question for a test. Which was surprising. Yeah, which was surprising to me because I was like, yeah. <laughs> you know, I wonder, you know, I wonder how much more stuff is being collected. I'm just curious. I don't know. Yeah. And then maybe since I identify as a student right now, and kind of like tying the example you brought in with comedians, it's like students establishing what they think is is fair or not to be collected and then kind of taking action with that. That's like a super trivial example and probably something that's not gonna happen. And I think the first step is getting people to realize if people don't know already, how data is being used unethically and kind of where the problems lie, which you covered. And you just went exactly where I would say you should go, which is collective action. And, and I think that's right. And I don't think that it's too trivial at all to imagine that students could, as a group, wake up and say, just to start with, like, we want to know more. Yeah. You know, like, tell us what you're doing. And, and the kind of the burden should be on you, the, the school district, to justify yeah. and explain. I think per personally, I'm not encouraging you specifically to do that. <laughs> <right? Because> of, <laughs> I have friends in North Allegheny. I don't want to get in trouble, but um, <laughs> but but I I think that's exactly the type of thinking that's appropriate in this in this context. Um, and you know the other thing that can happen, and you can get again to carry on with the schools example, uh, teachers sometimes don't know anything more than the students know about the capabilities of some of these systems. It may be that the administration is monitoring and gathering all this data in ways that student, that teachers don't even know. Um, I know from my own experience in my own university, uh, vast majority of my colleagues teaching as professors across the university uh, are not fully aware of all the ways in which our courseware software platform creates opportunities to monitor what students are doing. Yeah. Uh, I do <laughs> uh, because of what I do professionally. And so yeah. you can take minor steps to kind of help your students out. So yeah. for example, I'm teaching remotely. I've been teaching remotely all, all fall. Mm -hmm. uh, every every class session I record now, right. video record. And, and I but I don't record it in Zoom. Uh, and I don't record it in a way that automatically uploads to the university's courseware system. Because if I upload it, if I use Zoom, I record the student side as well as my side. I yeah. record my students' faces and comments as well as my face and comments. don't want to do that. I'll record my face. So I've got my software set up to record my side of the lecture and my slides, but not what the students say. I don't record in Zoom because I don't want to upload it into the courseware. So I don't want my administration to be able to say, well, so-and-so only watched 10 minutes of the lecture, <laughs> which they would be able to do. So I upload it. Uh, I have a private YouTube channel. Um, mm -hmm 
which I can control 100% of, and it's ADA compliant and all of the rules mm -hmm. on access and so forth, so I know I'm okay <laughs> with that. So I can monitor whether the video has been watched, but I can't tell you who watched it. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you how long they watched it. I just oh, know that yeah. somebody's been watching it. So there's various intermediate steps. You know, so the students could get active as a collective. Individual people who are part of the surveillance system can take steps if they educate themselves about the technology to use the technology in ways that collects less data, mm -hmm. still accomplishes my teaching goals, still communicates the content to the students, but in a way that doesn't, uh, doesn't suck up data, doesn't monitor people because I don't need to do that. Yeah, exactly. And I think- Different, different people can be active in, in trying to manage this data governance. Yeah. yeah. And I think, I think as time goes on and as, um, you know, these different forms of data become more knowledgeable by the general population, I feel like in a way our education might become reformed curriculum on, on how, on privacy might be emphasized a little bit more. I'm, I don't know. What, what are your thoughts on that? You hope so. You <laughs> hope so. You hope that the generation of people who are coming through school now mm -hmm. are motivated uh, to be more active and engaged in in how these systems are built, who is building them, where the money is going, and so forth. You worry. You worry because there is precedent out there in the world that says, you know, at a certain point, these things that are obtaining data are just too. Cool, or they're too convenient, yeah. or they're too, you know, they, they give us cool things that we have. So the giant eagle card, I used that example, right? What's the great thing about the giant oh, eagle card? So nice, so easy. I went to giant yeah. eagle the other day <laughs> and I couldn't buy something because I didn't have the card. So I just sat there and I was like, oh Jesus sucks. Right, so so your your giant eagle card, but the it'd be, again, talk to your parents if you wish about this. The great thing about the giant eagle card <laughs> is if you spend enough money, you get a free turkey at Thanksgiving. Oh, you do? What? That's awesome. Wait, actually? You have to spend, I mean, you have to spend a meaningful amount of money, but the point is that <laughs> yeah. it's very very concrete and tangible. It was like, okay, I got my turkey. Like, that's awesome. Like, do I care that Giant Eagle knows exactly how much toilet paper I'm using? Do I care exactly that you know, Giant Eagle knows how much dandruff I have in the shampoo, whatever? Yeah. You know? No, because I got my turkey. And so you worry about people making those trade-offs without thinking about what's really at stake. Mm -hmm. um, your car watches you now, right? Your car today yeah. is basically a giant computer on wheels. Yeah. Uh, monitoring all kinds of stuff in terms of how you use the car, where you're going, et cetera. If you have the uh, the sensor, to, if you're on the turnpike, the little automatic uh, toll thing on the PA turnpike, yeah. data, 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 like how fast you drive, where you're coming from, where you're going through. Exactly. It's taking pictures of you in the car, yeah. uh, but it's super cool and convenient and it's a bargain, right? Because if you don't use that thing, the cash, cash tolls are way out of control now, but you get a exactly. deal if you use the data sensor thing. Um, so, so you know, as a we're a consumer society, we're very accustomed to basically trading away things in exchange for bargains. Uh, so there's a pretty significant risk that data just becomes another thing that we're perfectly happy to give up. 
Yeah. Uh, and so think about, yeah. you know, we're all, we, most of us have been at home for the last six months. <laughs> uh, how do we amuse ourselves? We amuse ourselves with streaming on yeah. Netflix. And oh my Google gosh. And yes. Amazon. <laughs> What's up? Um, no. Again, you know, you know, people don't necessarily appreciate how much data you are feeding into Netflix and Amazon Prime and Hulu and Voodoo and all of these different services. <laughs> I, you know, I have Disney Plus and I have other things as well. Mm -hmm. Right, those are giant data vacuum cleaners. Yeah. As much as we are entertained and right. amazing <laughs> stuff we're watching, um, Netflix and Amazon Prime, Amazon especially, they're not in it because out of the goodnesses of their heart. Amazon's in it because they can take our viewing patterns and our Amazon shopping patterns. <laughs> as data, build data portfolios, and all of a sudden that's an incredibly valuable asset from the standpoint of Amazon. Yeah. But hey, free stuff and it's convenient. Yeah. Exactly. Amazon, I order something on Amazon today and it shows up tomorrow and that's genius. Me too. <laughs> so, I mean, that, that's a very, very pervasive attitude. Mm -hmm. and it's something that's really difficult to wrestle with if you're trying to figure out Know, collective action, individual entrepreneurial activity, yep. getting the governments involved at some level in yeah. some kind of data regulation. We like free stuff. Yeah. yeah. And it's what I think researchers coined as like the privacy paradox. We want privacy, but then our actions don't reflect it. But then we're like, no, we still want privacy though. And it's like the disconnect between what we want and what we do. Who knows? Yeah. I mean, I think maybe in the future, I can imagine, like based on what I've been taught about digital privacy or kind of the this giant realm of problems that will arise and are happening right now, I've just been told, you know, make sure keep your Instagram private. Mine's not. Like I like I don't even follow it. Like like I've been told, like do X Y Z. It's like going to help you, or you know, if you're ever looking for a job and someone wants to search you up. You never will be worried by the fact that, like, you might not get a job because of something you said. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I still don't follow it. So I can imagine maybe sometime in the future and someone can quote me on this. <laughs> I, can, I can bet, like, in 30 years, when I have kids and my kids are entering school, I don't, I think they'll treat data as, like, eh, it's whatever. You know, like, my life is good. It's okay if, yeah. like companies know me better than me. That's all right. It's just the way of life. I think I can almost place a bet on that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, so there, there, there's a part of this, which is very much, uh, I teach trademark law. And so part of this, you know, trademarks are, you know, logos and brands and symbols and, and mm -hmm. things like you know, Coca-Cola and things like Nike. And so some of what we talk about in trademark law bleeds over, you know, spills over into this conversation about things like social media and too much information and the wrong kinds of information being put out there on social media. And we tell our students the same thing. Uh, you know, have as many social media accounts <laughs> as you wish, but expect that as life advances, uh, school applications, jobs, job promotions, uh, romantic partners, uh, prospective roommates, I mean, you know, you're searchable and that whatever you put out there can be found. It's not necessarily advice to not do it, but it's advice to be sensitive to the kind of branding implications of mm -hmm. what you do. So the, the difficult, I mean, which is fine advice as far as it goes. The problem, of course, is that you know you in high school, me at a different stage of my career and life, have some you know rolling and changing expectations about 
what's appropriate, what might be okay now turns out to be a problem later. Yeah. You know, are you, are you, is your audience your current peer group or is your audience your prospective <laughs> peer group? Yeah. And you can't know. Uh, right? Because you just don't know where life is going to take you in terms of school or jobs or geography or, or anything. So you could, you could bend over backwards and be ultra careful all the time, but where's the fun in that? Yeah. Uh, or, uh, you know, caution to the wind and let the chips fall, fall, might, chips just fall where they hope might. That... Well, that's kind of risky because yeah. chips might fall in some really ugly places. <laughs> or, or you can just be a bit know in the moment anyway reflective about whether your sort of media presence and by what by that i mean kind of your public identity your non-private identity keep your thoughts to yourself keep your library books to yourself but you're sharing some things in a public facing way um be authentic don't be fake i think that's right? just the good thing, good advice for life in general, I not think just that's data. Right. But I think it's a, when we're like trying to talk about the complexity of privacy and yeah. data and good data and bad data, um, the worst thing in the world, what the law and social norms, you know, small groups and large groups and formal rules, you're, you're trying, number one, to get to a point of truthfulness and accuracy, yeah. which for human beings often means authenticity because there's often judgments involved in that. Uh, so you don't want deceptive, you don't want misleading, you don't want false. Easier said than done, but that's a goal. Um, and then uh, you know, the rest of it is sort of dealing with problems as they come along, because what seems appropriate because it's authentic and true now might still cause problems down the road. Yeah. Uh, my mother, years ago, my mother was a newspaper reporter mm -hmm. uh, for a long time. And uh, she was a true believer in the journalistic cause and the right of a free press and yeah. you know truth, truthful information. It was really, she was quite passionate about it. And in the 1970s, so we're going back now 45 years, uh, it became possible in the 1970s to get access to uh, plans for building a nuclear weapon. What? Yeah. Oh wow! Even I mean, even today, you can find them online. You want to you want to build a bomb? I won't give you the address, but it's possible. <laughs> in, in the 1970s, I mean, you, you can't necessarily get the plutonium. That's still pretty hard. But the, the plans, right. the blueprints. So wow. there were lawsuits in the 1970s concerning journalists, such as my mother. She was involved in some of this. Who thought in the interest of access to information, truthful information about nuclear bombs should be published. This is not internet, right? Okay. This is all, you know, era of magazines and newspapers. Yeah. Print stuff. Uh, and magazines and newspapers, including people my mother was, in, was associated with, they, they published these plans. Mm. Now, there was an enormous pushback. The federal government says this is national security. There's all right. kinds of harm that might come. There were terrorist incidents and terrorist groups at that time, which were much more threatening uh, at that time than, than terrorists are threatening today in relative terms. The First Amendment prevailed. People were permitted to, to publish these things. Nothing terrible happened. That's good. Mm -hmm. But the point is that uh, sort of truthfulness and factual basis is not always the only goal. Right. You also have to think in some sense about larger social issues. And uh, there's always going to be a, at least something of a balance or a trade-off. It's kind of road. those larger implications, the effects that truth might have in the greater society, right. bias and everything right. like that. Yeah.
Um, okay. Well, do you have any concluding thoughts about anything that we've talked about or anything that you kind of want to share to our younger audience, I guess? Um, yeah, just one thing, because you, you sent me ahead of time, you sent me the bullet points of the questions that we were going to talk about, and we didn't get to everything, we but there was one everything. thing on there that you, you noted, so about the future of education, mm. and, and this is not just about law school, I'm not here to tell everybody to go to law school, although for the right <laughs> person, it's still a great thing, um, <laughs> yeah. but, but what's happening in law school, it's happening in engineering school, it's happening for computer scientists, it's happening in every field out there, because I have friends in all kinds of areas of my university, mm -hmm. is that the kind of the technical or analytic content of that field, like the, the computer science-y content of computer yeah. science, the engineering content of, of engineering, the legal content of law, is becoming less and less important to professional impact, professional mm -hmm. success. Yes, we need engineers. Yes, we need lawyers. Yes, we need computer scientists. We need social workers. We need teachers. But the kind of standardized content of that field, it's always getting easier and cheaper to access that without spending a lot of money going to yeah. graduate school or even college. Yeah. The stuff that is going to be important and will distinguish one person from another, how will your career be greater, better, higher impact, more productive, more valuable than somebody else's career, is all the intangible stuff. Right. Collaboration, teamwork, leadership, emotional intelligence. Every professor I talk to in all of these different fields say, we need to be doing more of that. Mm -hmm. Supporting our new engineers, supporting our new computer scientists, supporting our new social workers, supporting our lawyers, not just to work with other lawyers or engineers working with engineers, but engineers working with lawyers, mm -hmm. engineers working with social workers. That's the future. I talked to the teachers, I talk to people in law firms, I talk to computer scientists. This is the big theme. So if you're out there listening to this and say you're in high school and you're on your way to college, or you're in college on your way to graduate school, or you're in graduate school on your way into a career, this is the area where you can really distinguish yourself. This is how you're going to make a difference. Just is how you interact with other people. It, uh, ironically, of course, I've just I've rattled off a bunch of fields that are like technical professions, <laughs> like STEM fields, you know, engineering, computer yeah. scientists, and I'm giving you this huge humanities pitch, right? Yes. This is where the humanities have historically always shined, right? Read literature to figure out how to get along with people, but it turns out to be true. Um, yeah. And, and it's not just a bunch of humanities people saying, you know, we told you so. This is the technical people, this is the STEM people saying we don't have enough. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, the people coming through the STEM pipeline need these other skills to be effective. Just more emphasis on ver a very interdisciplinary approach rather than focus specific on one, one Interdisciplinary, trait. multidisciplinary, transdisciplinary, <laughs> all kinds of different labels for different flavors of this. Yes. But it's building bridges and being able to, to work with people from other fields. That's the future. Yeah, I was reading um, like an article advocating for a liberal arts education and they were making their claim on why it's important, why it's relevant. And they brought up exactly what you said. Since the next generation of problems or the problems that are emerging now are technical in some regard, but a lot of it will deal with ethics and kind of the fundamental parts of who we are as humans and how we interact in systems and societies and problems that come along with along it that do accompany technical skills 
and having your engineers learn about philosophy or learn about communication, those intersections are definitely more important now. But also it's nice because as someone who is entering college, hopefully, um, <laughs> I don't know, like, I, I don't know, I don't know what, uh, what I'll decide or what the path will be, but it just gives you a lot of freedom to think what you want, choose what you want, do what you want, because at some point in your life, you hope and you know everything. that you're gonna need all of it yeah. or you you might be able to put in to use some of the stuff you do learn yeah and, and it and it doesn't need to be it could come across as being very careerist and directed and it doesn't have to be that way at all mm -hmm. uh, because as you just said you don't know where your path is going to take you and what skills will be useful at different points in time before we went uh live on the recording we were talking about gaming yeah, <laughs> uh, and um, something I just found out today. I literally found this out earlier today. The guy who was the founder of Twitch, okay, and in Justin Khan. Yeah, uh, you know, Twitch is this super, super valuable and important and widespread streaming platform for mm -hmm. mostly for gaming and for other things. Mm -hmm. um, Justin Khan was not a computer scientist. His college major was physics and philosophy. No way. Yeah. It's a blend. Yeah. It's an interdisciplinary major. And yeah. there's like the famous anecdotes of Steve Jobs taking calligraphy. And it's like, you know, well, maybe Apple wouldn't be this nice looking <laughs> if he hadn't <laughs> taken it. Or Mark Zuckerberg. I remember reading an article. I think the Harvard Crimson published it. That half of his classes were in the humanities. And maybe Facebook wouldn't have become the social network that it is if he hadn't taking those courses so yeah i don't know the more you learn the more you know i guess the more you <laughs> enjoy life the more know, and all these ideas will come together so anyway i just wanted to get you said you know do i have one thing so that's my pitch yes. is, um, <laughs> very important uh, you know, thing for sure you need to be very broad in your thinking yes be ready for what's coming i agree okay so kind of to wrap this up make sure to follow us on our instagram which is at Stuff We Don't Learn in School, and I sign up for our newsletter, which is stuffwedontlearninschool.org. Just plug in your email, and you'll get our bi-weekly newsletters. Um, and to end off, we have our ending quote for today, um, which was spoken and quoted from a man named Lee Felsenstein, who has had quite the career, I must say, as I was researching him. Um, he is an American computer engineer who played a very, very key role in how we use technology today in the mass production and kind of personalization of computers and just our capabilities of having our own source of the world right in front of us. Um, Mr. Madison, if you have anything else to add about Mr. Uh, Felsenstein. Uh, only that he was, you know, one of the pioneers of the internet, uh, yep. and and you know that generation of people it was mostly men, uh, but they were in many respects sort of a the, the they inherited sort of the ideology of the the 1960s, uh, mm -hmm. you know, sort of Berkeley and San Francisco and that very kind of revolutionary, uh, you know, liberating kind of politics and so the original instinct behind the internet was very much, uh, you know, can transform people's lives mm -hmm. in, a, in a very, very positive sense. And I think uh, despite all the problems that we've been talking about from data and, uh, and things, I think that there's a kernel of that instinct still around that, you know, if we figure out how to manage it ourselves, 
it still can be a powerful force for good. Yeah. So that's the source of this quotation, and it's why I like the I prefer back. <laughs> exactly. And his quote is, to change the rules, change the tools. Stuff we don't learn in school would not be possible without our team. Thank you to Victoria Wren for writing the newsletter, Sophie Liu for making the resource, Emma Scott for the digital content, and Gloria Wong for the graphic design.